Thanks, guys. Good morning, guys. I hope y'all had a great Thanksgiving. How many of your Thanksgivings were close to a pre-2020 Thanksgiving? Cool. How many of you were drastically different than every other Thanksgiving prior till now? <laughs> All right. We are looking forward to 2021 as it comes around the corner. Um, today, we're going to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 5. You're welcome to turn with that. We'll have it on the overhead as well. Matthew 5. Now, a little bit of backstory on this passage and me. This passage came up with me in... Um, and during the quarantine, like early on, summer sometime, uh, we were working through just readings with our Ironworks guys. And this particular passage just really settled in on me for some reason. It resonated well. I really wanted to dig into it. Um, I, I'm a very inquisitive kind of guy, so I just couldn't take it at face value. I had to kind of really, really dig. And over the course of, of months of working through it, I kind of came up with a basically a sermon series that we did with our students once we got back in person finally. Um, and so there were three weeks that were on one aspect of the verse and then three weeks that were on the second aspect of the verse. Um, and so we actually were able to do a teaching piece each week that was about 11 to 12 minutes as long, how long the video was. So if I'm doing the math right, I'm not a big math person, but like six weeks at 11 to 12 minutes, we got like an hour that we're going to get to hang out in here. So I hope your chairs are comfy. Um, if you need another pen, or I'm just kidding, I'm, I'm not that way at all. Um, actually, the struggle I've had this past week, honestly, if we're going to be brutally honest with each other, is making sure that I had enough time. I've spent eight months working on a five-for-five five window of keeping it under five minutes. I've spent eight months working on our Wednesday night teachings have all been 12 minutes or less. And so I've just really struggled with the context of a full-blown sermon piece. So you'll actually probably get out earlier than when Brooks is here. So don't, shh, don't tell him. That's our secret. Um, but we're going to look at this passage in Matthew 5, 13 through 16. It's on the screen. You can follow along in your Bible if you want. It says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." Now, in this passage, you guys have probably read this before. Um, what really stood out to me as I was working through this months ago was just the UR phrases that Jesus used. Two very cool illustrations, salt and light, right? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. We're going to spend just a few minutes today working through each of those components and understanding what those mean to us in 2020 as well. So the salt piece, Jesus uses the term salt of the earth. And I think it's cool because that's something that we use every day now. Salt of the earth people are those people that personify like just the absolute best qualities in humanity, right? And it's cool how a word and a phrase that was used so frequently today um, was actually given to us by Jesus thousands of years ago. Um, but people just don't get that. They just see it as just a phrase that's used in modern language. Um, let's go ahead and look at salt, though. And salt has a bunch of different purposes. We could spend time and time and time and working through it. But today, we're just going to look at a few of the major pieces. The first one is salt is used as a seasoning agent, right? And this one is no big surprise, especially this time of year. You just finished Thanksgiving. Hopefully, they were, all your dishes were seasoned well. If not, don't say anything because they might be sitting next to you, the people that actually got it ready, and I don't want to start any family feuds going on in the room. So salt is a seasoning agent, right? It enhances the food, the flavor of the food that is placed on. Um, if you ever watch Food Network, they always talk about the importance of salting. I can't how many chopped episodes I've watched where they get blasted for not salting something. Um, and then actually, here's your nerdy moment for that. I actually have a couple nerdy moments in here. That's just how I work. Um, but if you ever go to like a really fancy coffee house, 
our pastors here, we all have coffee issues. But if, we, if you go to a really fancy coffee house, they'll salt the brew basket before they run the, the drip coffee to take some of the bitterness out of the, the roasted beans that they use for that. So there's your little coffee nerd moment. So if you ever go and you see someone dumping salt in your coffee, they're not playing with you. It actually makes it taste better. Um, but salt is used as a seasoning agent. It enhances whatever it's placed on. And so as I was thinking through this, I was like, what does it mean for us as believers to be a seasoning agent? How do we enhance anything? Um, and, and as we settled on scripture, it means that the environment that we're in should be better because of our presence in it. As believers, our, our communities, our neighborhoods, our homes, our businesses, our sports teams for our, student, our kids, those should be better places because we are there. That is what it means to be an enhancer, a, a seasoning in those environments. Kindness is one way to do that, um, but there's a danger in that as well. And that's what I think Mark I mean, Matthew kind of hit on it, but then Mark's going to hit on it again as far as losing our saltiness. So let's read this passage from Mark, and we'll unpack what that means. So the Mark 9, there it is. Excellent. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now that passage mirrored a lot of the Matthew, right? We heard a lot of the similar thoughts, salt and losing its saltiness and all that kind of stuff. Uh, When we let behaviors of the world slip into our lives, we lose our saltiness. And if salt loses its saltiness, there's no, like, re-salting process. You can't make it good again. You guys have been to a restaurant, and you've seen that, like, crusty 1980s vintage salt shaker that hasn't been changed. It's got, like, goo on top, and you're really grossed out by it, but you really need some salt for whatever it is you're trying to eat, and you're trying to figure out how quick the pathogens are coming out of that. And it's just, it's bad. But that's what happens when you lose your saltiness. If you live in a life, and your words don't look any different than the words that are used in the world, then you've lost your saltiness. You've become stale. If the behaviors of the world are, are so prevalent in your life, you've, you've become stale. If the priorities of this earth are a priority for you over the priorities of heaven, then you've become stale in your walk as well. Mark 9 tells us that our saltiness should result in peace in our lives, right? And that sounds kind of funny because when we think about salty people today, we think about people that we don't want to deal with. Salty people are the irritable ones, the ones you don't want to deal with, the neighbor on the other side of the fence or wherever it is. Actually, I have good neighbors. I can't say that. But salty people are not the ones that you think of being peaceful individuals. But Scripture tells us that if we have salt within us, if we live a life where we enhance the environments that we're around, then peace is going to be part of that aspect of our lives as well. That's not the only function of salt, though. Salt works as a seasoning agent, but it also works as a preservative. And now for our students, this was a big shock to them. There was a time prior, not so long ago, when it was a lot more difficult to preserve food, right? We didn't have refrigerators and freezers and like chemical preservatives, good or bad, whatever that is. We didn't have canning. We didn't have vacuum seals, all these other fun technology things we have in the kitchen today. But you used to have to pack stuff in salt to save it. And the way that would work is they put meat or vegetables or fruit or whatever it was, pack it in salt. And that salt would pull out the moisture out of the food. Therefore, the food was able to last longer. So the question that followed when I was studying through this months ago was, what are we to preserve in our life as Christians? Like, what is this calling us to preserve? And my initial thought was a very churchy answer, and that was a great answer, but it it provided some issues. And my initial thought was that we are to preserve God's morality. Like in its fullness, we're supposed to preserve this lifestyle where God is put on display and the right is made right and the wrong is pushed away. And that sounds great, right? That's just a churchy answer for things. But the reality is, is I thought about that and I tried to see my own life and where I fell on that. Man, I fall short of that. And so instead of stressing over it and feeling just defeated every single day that I'm not accomplishing this massive task of preserving God's morality in the world around us, Scripture and prayer and the Holy Spirit by His goodness showed me that it's not so much as the morality piece, is that we're to preserve God's commands. 
And, and by preserving God's commands, all the rest of that stuff will come in time and through the work of the Holy Spirit, not necessarily through our goodness or our ability to be able to cover that stuff up. So as I evaluate things in my life, if I'm coming to a decision, and I'll sit down and I'll say, here's the decision that is before me, and if my decision lines up with Scripture, then I'm good to go. That's the beauty of preserving God's commands. But if by some chance that my decision, and the way I want my heart to go, the way my heart wants me to go, doesn't line up with Scripture, then that's my issue to fix. It's not Scripture's issue to change. It's my issue to get in line with Scripture. And so I can say, you know what, Eric, that's absolutely out of bounds. You shouldn't be thinking that way. You shouldn't be wanting that necessarily. So let's move you out of that. Let's surrender that decision, put it back in line with the the commands of God that we find in Scripture. And by doing that, I'm preserving God's commands in my life. And what's great is if I can do that consistently, I will be living out the morality that God has in store for me. But it's not such a daunting task when I look at it line by line as opposed to the fullness you know, think about it from a sports analogy. Instead of this football field-sized goal that I've got to cover the entirety of the football field with just preserving God's commands, instead now I'm saying this is the yard-by-yard game plan. This is how I'm going to get to the point by following God's commands and preserving them in my life. Now, the idea of God preserving God's commands is found throughout Scripture. It's all over the place. We don't have time to get to all that today, but there's a couple passages I want to show uh, because they, they give us some insight, and Deuteronomy is the first one. Deuteronomy 28 and 9. It says, the Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you, here's the kicker, if you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. We know that when we put into practice God's commands, our life's a little bit smoother, right? We get to enjoy this unique relationship with God, and, and when we fail to put those commands into practice, it's not that God doesn't love us anymore. It's not that he doesn't call us to be his own. The reality is that when we choose not to keep his commandments in our lives, that we've kind of pushed ourselves away from his, his relationship, and we've lost that connection, but it's not that he ever leaves. He never turns his back on us. He's always there for us. God still loves us. He still calls us to his own, but when we're in sync with those commands, life's just a little bit sweeter. The air's better. You can read into whatever you want to read into. First uh, John 2 is another passage that talks about how we're to keep his commands. It says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. When someone claims to follow Christ but lives a life that doesn't preserve God's commands, it looks weird. Would you all agree with that? There's something strange. There's a disconnect. It just, it's, it's, in, it's disingenuous, if that's even the right word. But the reality is you see something different about them, and you're like, look, you're claiming this thing, but you're living this thing, and they don't jive, so what's the problem? And it's hard to take them seriously. And so this passage in John tells us that, that basically if you're claiming Christ, you've got to live Christ. And by doing that, you're preserving the commands that God has given us. And that the world is going to see something different because of the claim that you're making and then the claim that you're living out as well. So what does it look like for you to preserve God's commands in your life? And I think the most important place to start for all of us is to first know God's commands. Right? The fact that we're here in church, we should know like 10 commandments. I can say all 10. Most of you can. Um, If we get into the New Testament covenant with Christ there, there's different pieces about Jesus. We should know most of that. But the reality is there's so much in Scripture that we might not know or might not be familiar with or might have only heard once or twice. And there's so many voices online and on social media that misquote and misuse and misinterpret and just flat make up Scripture. And in those situations, we've got to make sure that we are knowledgeable enough as believers to say, that's really not what it's saying, or that's really not in the Bible at all. And if we're unable to say that, then we haven't done the the investigation necessary and we haven't preserved God's commands because we just don't know them. 
That's sad. We've got to fix that. So knowing God's commands is probably the easiest way to preserve his commands. And that just takes time on our part and and the Holy Spirit to illuminate our eyes to those kind of things. All right, so we've talked about how salt seasons. We've talked about how salt helps us preserve God's word. Let's move to the last piece of salt for now. And salt is a healing agent. Salt has been used for centuries to treat infections. There's actually teaching in the Old Testament to bathe infants in a salt bath to take the bacteria off them so they stay healthy and well. There's science that backs the whole thing up, and I'm not going to get too nerdy for the moment, but the science behind it is the salt, when it gets around bacteria, it pulls the water out of bacteria through osmosis, which kills the bacteria cell. Bacteria dies, salt stays, it's a good thing. That's how salt works as an antiseptic. And so as I was thinking about what that means, like how do, how do we, what are we supposed to heal? Like what power do we have to heal in the first place? I started thinking about people in my circles that have wounds, emotional wounds. That could be an emotional wound from some betrayal that they've experienced in their life at some point. It could be an emotional wound from them being attacked by someone. It could be an emotional wound from them being left alone. There's so many different emotional wounds that you guys are in in circles with. And that's our opportunity to show Christ and to be a healing agent in those moments. There's a passage in Psalm 34 that talks about how God heals. It says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That part is encouraging all day long. And it goes on to say, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Scripture tells us that that we're not promised a, a carefree life. It says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. We're going to face hard times. We're going to have wounds, emotional, in our lives. Um, But in all those, God is close to those. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So as a believer, we have that promise that we have that kind of healing agent and the God that loves us and calls us his own. But then as his representatives to the world around us, we have the same call. We're to be be near to the brokenhearted, to encourage, to walk with those crushed in spirit, knowing that God can redeem them and restore them. It is great to pray with someone, pray for someone that's hurting, right? That's what we always, that's a good Christian thing to do. I'm going to pray for you. What can I pray for? The reality is to pray with someone, to stop right there, take the second and say, I'm going to pray with you. Can I pray right now? That's like a whole nother level better. And then the best option is to walk with that person. We've seen and you've experienced in your own life that it's easier to carry a heavy burden when you've got other people walking alongside you through that, that burden. When we see other people hurting as God's healing agents in this world, guys, we need to remind them of the truth that we find in Scripture, that God is a God of love, a God of restoration, that he can make beauty out of junk, and that's what we need to remind everyone that's hurting around us. And that way, we can act as a healing agent to the world because of Christ that's inside of us. So as we started this off, there, there's salt was the first you are statement that Jesus gave us in Matthew 5. The second you are statement he gave us was that you are the light of the world. So we're going to look now at this light piece. Now, the first thing to understand is that the salt is who we are, right? It's the internal ideas and mindsets. Salt is who we are. Light is what we do. So Jesus knew this when he was unpacking. The salt is, is the internal character and how we relate to the world. The, the light is what we do to, the, to those that are outside to show Christ in those settings. So the light of the world um, is the first piece. And the first function of light that we're going to talk about is is to push back darkness. Now, if I turn off all the lights in this room and I put the little window blinds up that we had up for years, probably a couple months back, it would get really dark in this room, right? If you've ever been in here when we had those things up and we turned the lights off, you'd see little cracks of light around the holes and, and the doors. But other than that, it was dark. And if I did that and then I turned on a flashlight, you could see the light, right? But could I ever make it darker to, to put to enough to put the light out that I have on my flashlight? Like, could I, could I up the darkness level, if that's even a thing, to put out the light? 
No, you can't. Darkness can't get darker, but light can get lighter, right? The lumens can get more, and then those lumens can push that darkness back further into the shadows. There's such a spiritual truth in that concept. It's scientific, but it's beautiful because God designed it that way. He said there's no way that darkness can overcome light ever. Light can overcome darkness, but darkness will never get dark enough to overcome light, and that is so true in our lives as well. That whatever the enemy does, whatever plan he has, whatever scheme falls, whatever consequence of our own stupidity comes on us, that darkness can never overcome the light of Christ that's in us. And so the first piece that we need to talk about, about being light of the world, is to push back darkness. And one way we can do that is by calling out sin. And I'm going to tell you guys, that's not a favorable opinion right now. There are true things in Scripture that are not well-loved by the world. There are true things in Scripture that believers have a hard time with. But the reality is that God knows better. We just need to follow those things. And so in those moments when we see sin and we see things that are contrary to God's character and God's heart, we need to be a loving, kind person to call that out in a loving, kind way. Please hear me on that one because oftentimes that's not how it goes. But that is what it means to be the light of the world, to push back darkness by calling those things out. When Jesus dealt with the Pharisees, he didn't just let their sin slide because he didn't want to offend them. He lovingly corrected them and sometimes harshly corrected them. But at the same time, he said, this is not okay. You can't claim this and live this. We've got to fix those things out. Now, people might be angry with us when we live as that kind of light and we call things out. Of course, we have to understand we have our own sinfulness to deal with as well. Too many people try to come off as self-righteous above that. We can't do that either. But when we shine God's truth on sin in the world, that is an opportunity for us to push darkness back, to defeat the enemy, to be light in a world that is lost. One thing that's very important when it comes to being light in the world is how we sustain our light. I don't know about you, but there are days when I just don't feel like being there for people. Is that bad? I said that out loud, didn't I? There are plenty of days where I would just be totally content sitting on the couch with a big old sweet tea and watching TV. Like, that would be phenomenal. And, and I, my, that day might stretch into a week, might stretch into a month. But then I'm like, oh, shoot, I've just totally let my light go out. I'm not reaching anyone because of this. And that's from a pastor. I should do better than that. But we need to make sure that we don't let our light dim. We need to make sure that we stay recharged. We have to recharge our batteries. You guys ever seen things that are like marked glow in the dark? I know Jeremy gives out goofy gifts all the time, but these, I don't know if I've seen these from him yet or not. These are actually bought for our students. This glow in the dark ball. How many of y'all grew up with these things? This is like the Dollar Tree special or whatever. Yeah. So what was the first thing you would do when you got something that says glow in the dark? Turn the lights off. If you really wanted it to be like really dramatic, what would you do before you turn the lights off? Put in the light, right? Like whether it's like an artificial light, like you put under the lamp. The best was to go outside if it's a sunny day and put it out in the sun and leave it there for like an hour, hour and a half. Man, you bring that guy back in and you're like hiding in the closet or the bathroom and you're like looking at it and it's like glowing, right? And that's so cool. That's how these things are designed to work. But what's important is it's got to be charged up first. And that's the same thing that's true in our lives as well. We have to be charged up. How do we become charged as believers? We become charged by, by interactions with our God. That means time in his word, understanding what he means for us to do. That means time in prayer, having a conversation with God about the things that are important to us. That's how we recharge. And as believers, we got to make sure that we keep those things as a regular cycle in our days. So light of the world, we're to push back darkness. Jesus goes on in Matthew 5 to continue and call us the city on a hill. Now, he used this phrase, city on a hill, because he was teaching the Sermon on the Mount. So he was on a hill when this was happening. As he was looking out across, he could see. You can Google it if you get a chance later and see what it looked like. It was beautiful. There's these rolling hills, and there's the Sea of Galilee over to the side. And so I could imagine as Jesus was looking over their heads and, and kind of just taking in the beauty of creation that's around him that he created, 
He saw all these little cities along the Sea of Galilee, and he's like, you know, that's going to be really cool at night because it's kind of going to glow and just shine like little sparkling diamonds all over. How many of you have ever been somewhere like up on a mountain at night, and you've been able to see all like little cities and houses and all that kind of stuff? It's gorgeous, isn't it? And that's the idea that Jesus was trying to communicate, is that we're to be a city on a hill, that as people are, are, are lost in this vastness of darkness, that we need to be that beacon of hope on a hill. We need to be a city set apart, shining bright. Our lives should be a light in the darkness to all those who are stuck. The good news in Jesus is something we shouldn't keep to ourselves. It's something we should share boldly and happily. We should let everyone see the hope and the peace that we found in Jesus. And if we're honest with ourselves and we don't have a whole lot of hope and peace in our lives, we need to make sure that we're not pretending that we're something we're not. That's a heart check moment in there. But at the same time, guys, those people that are lost in darkness, they should use our lives as almost like a waypoint, trying to find their way back to Christ. Now, that might be a little more pressure than you guys want to take on. I get it. That's a lot to say that you're going to have other people in your life looking at your life and expecting to find hope and purpose in that. That's scary because oftentimes our, our lives look more like a mess than a beacon of hope. Would y'all agree with that? So we, we have to find out what it means. And thankfully, Scripture is very clear that the saving grace to this idea is that our light doesn't come directly from us. There's another source of light, and we find that in John 8, 12. It says, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus talks about how he's the light over and over again. This was just one instance. Jesus is the light of the world. And when he was physically walking on earth, he pushed back darkness with his life and his choices and his love for other people. And when he returned to to his glory in heaven, he left us that job. We're to be the light of the world. But we're sinful creatures, right? We're not holy. We're not perfect like Jesus was. So how do we pull that off? Well, there's a trick to that too. We've got a ton of beautiful full moons in the past couple months, right? Especially around here on the coast, it's really cool to see. They shine really bright. They raise the tides for those of you that are coastal. Sorry about that. But the beauty is that you can go outside at like two at night and see everything because there's so much light in the sky. Let me ask you a question. Does the moon have any light of its own? There's the secret. No, it doesn't. This big, beautiful object that shines in the light in, at night and lights up all the roads around us, it has no light production of its own. The moon is simply reflecting the light from the sun. And if it, by some chance the earth, the shadow and the rotation comes around and the shadow of the earth covers up the sun, the moon goes dark, which is its natural state. But then the second the earth kind of rotates a little bit further and the sun peaks around the side and hits the moon again, we see it in the sky again. And that little piece of, of cool science there is exactly what it looks like for us to be the city on a hill. It's not our goodness. It's not our, our actions. It's not our, our righteousness in itself. It's, it's Christ mirrored and reflected off of us. That's what it means to be a city on a hill. We're to be simply a reflection of the light of Jesus. When the people that Jesus reached out to in, in his earthly ministry should be a priority to us. The stuff that, that bothered Jesus in his earthly ministry should bother us today. That's what it means to be a reflection. And when we do that, people are going to see Christ in us. There's a verse in First Peter 2 that talks about how we reflect Jesus. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim, or I can even hide in there, you may reflect the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We've been chosen by God, guys, called as his own, given this task and this purpose of showing people what it is to have hope and to have light in a dark world. And again, it's God's light, his goodness, 
not our own. That should help us breathe a little bit easier. So Jesus continues in Matthew 5. He goes into this discussion about a light put on a lampstand and a light under a basket. And most of you kind of like, if you grew up around church or VBS, you're flashing back to the This Little Light of Mine song because that's where we get some of that passage from as well. Um, Let's jump all of us back to our first century life for just a second. In first century world, when you wanted light after the sun went down, you had to have some kind of a fire or candle or something like that, right? There's no magic switch on the wall that made the lights come on in the house. There were no electricity. There was nothing like that. So in that time period, if you wanted to see something, you had to have some source of fire. And so typically in the first century, people would have a shelf on their wall, and they would have a lamp built on that shelf, and that lamp would fill with oil of some sort, typically olive oil, and they would light it, and it would reflect off the wall, and that room would have light after the sun went down. Now, if you were blessed enough in the first century to have more than one room in your house, you would have more than one shelf, you'd have more than one lamp, because that's just how it worked. There was no like electricity with central lighting. And so, and imagine now how silly it would be if the sun has set, you're sitting in your house, you have taken the time to fill up your lamp, you've cut the wick, you've lit your lamp, but then you're sitting in a dark house because you put a bucket over your lamp. That's what Jesus was communicating with this idea of not putting a, a bucket or a bushel or a basket, whatever you want, to, whatever translation you use, not covering up your light is what he's saying. You know, it, it sounds silly, right? That you'd be in a dark house because you covered up your light, but Jesus knew that that would make sense to the people that were hearing it. Instead of letting that light shine and serving the purpose that it's supposed to serve, it's covered up. And it's ineffective. And I think what Jesus was saying for us was that we need to be bold in our faith. We already know that our lives are going to stand out like cities on a hill, right? That's just what it is. We'll talk about that more in just a second. We can't cover up our light by downplaying our faith. Of course, it's probably easier a lot of time to be quiet in those settings when someone does ask us about our faith or why we do or don't do this certain thing. It's a lot easier just to say, ah, it's just something I do. But the reality is to say, because God came into my life and changed my life from the very beginning, is a whole nother conversation piece altogether. And that's allowing your light to be in front of other people. That's allowing your light to shine and not be covered up by a basket or a bushel. Now, you might not be given a public platform like this to stand on and talk about Jesus. That's a blessing that I have for sure. Um, you might not be called into a court to talk about your belief or your faith or your stance or that. But I promise you, you're going to have someone around you in your friend group or a coworker that's going to ask you about your faith and why it is that you don't take part in these behaviors that other people are taking part in. That's our chance to be bold, guys. Sometimes it's hard to be bold. We kind of feel like we're standing on an island on those moments. Would y'all agree with that? Where you kind of feel like, I'm going to take a stand for my faith and no one's standing with me and I'm kind of nervous about it. Well, God has a word for that too. Actually, in Deuteronomy 31.6, Moses has a word for the people. God has a word through Moses for the people. It says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. What was going on right here in this point in time that the nation was still in the wandering, still in the desert, and they were about to transition leadership from Moses over to Joshua. And they were nervous because this new guy, Joshua, was going to be taking over. And then they were nervous because they, they were facing a new land that they were going into with new enemies and new unknowns. Not that we would ever understand what the unknown felt like, would we, in 2020, not knowing what the future holds or what tomorrow is going to look like. But that's what was going on for the nation of Israel here. And in Deuteronomy, God said, don't, don't fear Don't let fear cover your light. Be strong. Be courageous. Know that I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I'm walking this walk with you. I'm going through it with you as well. And guys, we have the same opportunity today as well, right? When we're tempted to let our lamp go out, we need to know that God has never left us. He's never turned his back on us. He's given us the provision, the boldness, the opportunity to speak light into the world and push back that darkness. That is how it needs to work. So 
like I said, I was, I was stressed out this past week trying to get all this stuff squished in. I felt like we were going 300 miles an hour with all these different passages. I had like an hour and some change worth of stuff to squish into 20, 25 minutes. So let me give a super quick wrap up and then we have kind of the last piece. Salt, it was the first you are statement that Jesus gave us in Matthew 5. And salt, it has three purposes that we looked at today. There are plenty of others. But salt is meant to season. And for us as believers, that means we enhance the world that's around us. Salt is also used as a preservative, which means that we're to preserve God's commands in our lives. And then finally, salt was used as a heat healing agent, right? And we have the opportunity, the blessing, the calling to heal the world around us because of the hope that we found in Jesus Christ. So that is how we live as salt. And those are things that we do a lot of times on the inside. Those are attitudes that we take when we're facing a situation. So that's what salt looks like. Let's flip that over and look at light because that's the other you are statement that Jesus gave us in Matthew 5, 13 through 16. He says, in, in light, you're to push back darkness. So when darkness comes around, we're to turn on our lights and let those things shine. And that darkness has to go off to the, the shadows It's never going to be able to overcome us because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. Light also leads the lost out of darkness. This is that city on a hill piece, right? Whenever we we think about the people that are are in darkness, it's hard to see. You trip over things. It's chaos. We should be that light sitting on a hill or or that lamp sitting somewhere and, and drawing people out of the chaos and out of the darkness into that right relationship with God and that light. And then finally, we're to boldly proclaim Jesus. We have the opportunity to let that light shine. We don't want to do anything that's going to cover that light up. So my last little object lesson, I told y'all I'm going to be out of here quick. My last little object lesson, I'm a gear guy. Like, I love gear stuff. I'm a nerd like that, among other things. Um, I have flashlights. I have pocket knives. I have backpacks. I have all kind of random stuff. Like, Adrian gets annoyed with me every time I bring something new home. I blame scouts on that when I was an Eagle Scout. We just, we had lots of stuff. But flashlights are one of my, my... I don't know, guilty pleasures, I guess, whatever. It's not, not that bad. So flashlights, if you go to Walmart right now, there's like 30 or 40 on the flashlight aisle, right? And they have all different lumens. A lumen is a fancy way of saying how you measure the, the brightness of a light. I'm not getting into the technicalities of that because I could hardly understand it myself. But lumens are like a standard unit of measurement. And so you have flashlights like this. This is called an inspection light. It's not super bright. Totally does what it needs to do. Super durable. Actually, I keep this in my backpack all the time. Actually, I keep both of these in my backpack because, again, I'm a gear guy. But this one is like 100 lumens. It's not too much. And then you got some that are a little bit better. This one's like closer to 200, and I did good. First service, I shined that in my eyes when I started it. So y'all are welcome. Um, this one's about 250 lumens or something like that. It's a little bit brighter, serves more purposes. This one actually has some function, too, so you can actually focus it in. I've got one in the truck that's a 700 lumen. And then they keep going up into like ridiculous amount of lumens where you can like blind your little brother with it if you want to do that, but we're not going to talk about that today. Um, but lumens are those things that go out. And what's unique is the, the variety of lumens and flashlights range tremendously. I mean, you've got from 10 all the way up to thousands. But the reality is there's something that they all have in common. That is that they give off light. That's how what a lumen is, right? If I were to make this room dark again, you would see both of these lights, correct? This one would be a little bit less bright than this one. And if I had the 700, both of these would be a little bit less bright, but it wouldn't go away. There's no way to make that lumen. I'm going to do that before I blind somebody. You're going to, no way to make that light go away. Once the light's out, it's out, and the darkness is pushed back. And so in those moments, that is exactly what it's like for us as well. As believers, Christ in us is going to shine out regardless of what we do. There are people that might shine a little brighter than you because their maturity is further or because their boldness. There are people that are just getting into their faith and they might be a little bit less bright, but they're getting there as part of the process of maturing as a believer. But all of them are shining light out into the darkness because that's what Christians do. You can't stop it. You can't change it. You, don't want it, you can't wish it away. 
You can try to cover it up with your actions, right? When you choose to do something that God isn't honored with or something he's clearly said not to do in his word, you can try to cover it up. But if I turn all the lights off in this room and held this like this, what would you still see? Right, great answer, light. Because it creeps out through everything. Every little nook, every little cranny, you can even see through my fingers a little bit. It's kind of weird. But that's exactly how light works. And so in those moments when we feel like we're just absolutely not pulling the, the, the weight that we need to pull as a believer, Christ is still shining out. We're still a light in the darkness of the world around us. When our decisions sometimes make our light a little bit more dim, we still have light shining out of us. We still have an opportunity to show Christ to the world that is around us. So guys, I hope you've enjoyed this Matthew 5 thing. Go back, check it out yourself, 13 through 16. It's four passages, but there's so much depth into it. And I thoroughly enjoyed spending time working through it. Um, Hopefully you guys are going to get some from it as well. And be challenged, man. You have salt and light is what you need to be in this world. Um, Let our light shine and let our salt be salty. Um, as I close today, my prayer is that you guys are going to have an uh, opportunity this week to be bold, to, to shine your light, and to let someone know about Jesus because of the life that you're living. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for this day. Thank you for a chance to spend time in your word. God, I thank you for the truth that we find in Matthew 5 about how we're to be salt and light, how our lives as believers are to demonstrate a different set of priorities, God. And I just thank you for loving us so much, for sending the Holy Spirit to help us be able to pull that off because, God, we couldn't do that well on our own. We fall short. But God, help us spend time in your word, know your word, know the the commands that we're to preserve. Father God, help us put those things into practice, help our light shine in a bold and and just illuminating way to the world around us, Father. I just thank you for um, this year, God, even with all the trials and tribulations we face, God, there's still been good that has come out of it. God, help us be able to not lose that as we move into 2021 and, and appreciate the things you've given us, God, and appreciate the purpose for these trials that we face. So again, we thank you for this time. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.